All right, we are back. Me and Oliver and the one survivor of the garden, the Northern Lights plant. For those of you all who have mentioned to me what a scatterbrain I am, that's a fact. But we're sweeping it all up into a pile, you see, and you all are going to help me sort it, sort it out. I once was told by an 80-some-odd-year-old lady. I only knew her as Granny Cook. And she had been a Christian for like 50-some-odd years by that time. Now, I have been a Christian for almost 50-some-odd years by this time. And I'm looking back on some of the things that I have always believed, and I am examining them to see if they were lies. That's what this whole process contains. It's not all it's about, but it contains this one action that people must take to get off the platform and actually get on the train that's taking us where we're going. The idea of hearing ears are ears that can hear the message in the medium available. This is the medium available to you. If you are hearing my voice, then perhaps I'm not as scatterbrained as I appear to be because I can at least handle the technology to get this done and I'm on my way to 71. And sometimes I rhyme but not often. Anyway, to skip to the point of why I was defending my scatterbrainedness is just to show you that it's not actually all that scatterbrained. The next segment of this show is going to be a direct reading from a man I consider a friend, Benjamin Franklin. And uh, I can get as trippy as you want about us being able to claim friendship with people who lived before us in the past. There's a wonderful YouTube uh, Great Courses lecture about time. Uh, forgive me if I get it wrong. I think the guy's name is Carol, Sean Carroll. But he brings up the block theory of time, where it's possible to be outside of time. There's that imaginable POV that humans have had for some time. It's called, uh, in some circles, the no-when POV. In my way of thinking, when a person is able to, in your mind, change your point of view, that can lead a person to imagine that all 
points of view could be changed simultaneously by everyone who is seeing what the seer is seeing or saying his the seer is seeing or saying that he is seeing this is that which the prophets spoke of this still small voice that says to you this is the way walk in it or another that says find the old way where good is and walk in it Jeremiah of Anathoth said that to some people way back when I think it was uh, some time before Daniel was cognitive and Jeremiah ostensibly said to the head of the body of Israel repent or perish and the head Jehoiah something or whatever you know you can look up the guy's name dumb guy anyway the stories that are in the Bible are stories about nobodies who spoke to people that believed with all their hearts, apparently, that they were somebody special, superior to all those beneath them. But then one of these nobody comes along, Jesus Christ. This is who I'm going to be talking about here, Jesus Christ. You know how Paul said he didn't care how anybody tried to twist the gospel. I think he was saying, if you admit that there is even the idea of a man doing what Jesus Christ did, if you can even think that thought, you're not going to get out of here alive. Well, you weren't going to get out of here alive anyway, were you? But the concepts that which we can hold in our hands, that which we can, we have received it, it has been conceived, and we have a concept. We got a grip on this thing. We hold certain truths to be self evident I am alive or was when I spoke those words self evident Q E D I think therefore I am a thinker right my California dove friend has just landed on the oak tree right in front of me again. 
I won't offend her this time by waving my hands and dancing around. I'll just acknowledge her with a nod and a wave, and she bowed her little head toward me and began to preen, as if I don't mean anything to her. Yet she shares my world. She's a living, decision-making thing who has chosen several days in a row to come and sit while I am recording this podcast show. I consider her a punctuation. Her arrival is a point in the show where I can pause and say, I'd forgotten where I was going, so this is the end of the segment. All right. I'm so thankful for this machine that I have that proves that I'm no longer scatterbrained. It's like an augmentation to my short-term memory. Granny Cook told me we all need discernment. We all need discernment. Discerning is what you do when you pan for gold. First, you know, it's a process. You can watch it on History Channel or something. I have a gold pan in my garage that belongs to my wife who has done her share of panning for gold and has her share of discernment. And (laughs) she asked me not to mention her on this radio show because she (laughs) she wasn't sure she wanted to be associated with my way of thinking. But she winked. All right. Covered the scatterbrained part from last time around and finished telling you what Granny Cook had taught me. Since my friend Benjamin couldn't be here in person today, we invited him in spirit and we brought his words from two hundred and thirty-three years ago, I suppose. The remarks concerning the savages of North America. Savages, we call them, because their manners differ from ours, which we think the perfection of civility. They think the same of theirs. Perhaps if we could examine the manners of different nations with impartiality, we should find no people so rude as to be without any rules of politeness, nor any so polite as not to have some remains of rudeness. The Indian men, when young, 
are hunters and warriors. When old, counselors, for all their government is by counsel of the sages. There is no force, there are no prisons, no officers to compel obedience or inflict punishment. Hence they generally study oratory, the best speaker having the most influence. The Indian women till the ground, dress the food, nurse and bring up the children and preserve and hand down to posterity the memory of public transactions. These employments of men and women are accounted natural and honorable. Having few artificial wants, they have abundance of leisure for improvement by conversation. Our laborious manner of life compared with theirs, they esteem slavish and base. And the learning on which we value ourselves, they regard as frivolous and useless. An instance of this occurred at the Treaty of Lancaster in Pennsylvania, 1744, between the government of Virginia and the Six Nations, that is, the Confederation of Iroquois Tribes, Seneca, Cayuga, Oneida, Onondaga, Mohawk, and Tuscarero. After the principal business was settled, the commissioners from Virginia acquainted the Indians by a speech that there was at Williamsburg a college with a fund for educating Indian youths and that if the Six Nations would send down half a dozen of their young lads to that college, the government would take care that they should be well provided for and instructed in all the learning of the white people. It is one of the Indian rules of politeness not to answer a public proposition the same day that it is made. They think it would be treating it as a light matter and that they show it respect by taking time to consider it as if it's a matter important. They therefore deferred their answer till the day following when their speaker began by expressing their deep sense of the kindness of the Virginia government in making them that offer. For we know, says he, that you highly esteem the kind of learning taught in those colleges and that the maintenance of our young men while with you would be very expensive to you. We are convinced, therefore, that you mean to do us good by your proposal, and we thank you heartily. But you, who are wise, must know that different nations have different conceptions of things, and you will therefore not take it amiss if our ideas of this kind of education happen not to be the same with yours. We have had some experience of it. Several of our young people were formerly brought up at the colleges of the northern provinces. They were instructed in all your sciences. But when they came back to us, 
They were bad runners, ignorant of every means of living in the woods, unable to bear either cold or hunger, knew neither how to build a cabin, take a deer, or kill an enemy, spoke our language imperfectly, were therefore neither fit for hunters, warriors, nor counselors. They were totally good for nothing. We are, however, not the less obliged by your kind offer, though we decline accepting it, and to show our grateful sense of it, if the gentlemen of Virginia will send us a dozen of their sons, we will take great care of their education, instruct them in all we know, and make men of them. That was the end of Ben's quote. We'll have to see if we can find out who it was that actually said that, but I've got my money on Ben being the guy that actually said it. Having frequent occasions to hold public councils, they have acquired great order and decency in conducting them, these savages who were here before the white men. The old men sit in the foremost ranks that warriors The old men sit in the foremost ranks, then warriors in the next, and the women and children in the back rank, the hindmost. The business of the women is to take exact notice of what passes, imprint it in their memories, for they have no writing, and communicate it to their children. They are the records of the council, and they preserve traditions of the stipulations in treaties 100 years back, which, when we compare with our writings, we always find exact. He that would speak rises, the rest observe a profound silence. When he is finished and sits down, they leave him five or six minutes to recollect that if he has omitted anything he intended to say or has anything to add, he may rise again and deliver it. To interrupt another, even in common conversation, is reckoned highly indecent. How different this is from the conduct of a polite British House of Commons, where scarce a day passes without some confusion that makes the speaker hoarse in calling to order, and how different from the mode of conversation in many polite companies of Europe, where if you do not deliver your sentence with great rapidity, you are cut off in the middle of it by the impatient loquacity of those who you converse with and never suffered to finish it. The politeness of these savages in conversation is indeed carried to excess, since it does not permit them 
to contradict or deny the truth of what is asserted in their presence. By this means, they indeed avoid disputes, but then it becomes difficult to know their minds or what impression you make upon them. The missionaries who have attempted to convert them to Christianity all complain of this one as one of the great difficulties of their mission. The Indians hear with patience the truth of the Gospels explained to them and give their usual tokens of assent and approbation. You would think they were convinced. No such matter. It is mere civility. The right thing to do, I say. A Swedish minister that Ben heard of, having assembled the chiefs of the Susquehanna Indians, made a sermon to them, acquainting them with the principal historical facts on which our religion is founded, such as the fall of our first parents by eating an apple, the coming of Christ to repair the mischief, his miracles and suffering, etc., when he had finished, an Indian orator stood up to thank him. What you have told us, he says, is all very good. It is indeed bad to eat apples. It is better to make them all into cider. We are much obliged by your kindness in coming so far to tell us these things which you have heard from your mothers. In return, I will tell you some of those we have heard from ours. In the beginning, our fathers had only the flesh of animals to subsist on. And if their hunting was unsuccessful, they were starving. Two of our young hunters, having killed a deer, made a fire in the woods to broil some part of it. When they were about to satisfy their hunger, they beheld a beautiful young woman descend from the clouds and seat herself on that hill which you see yonder among the blue mountains. They said to each other, It is a spirit that has smelled our broiling venison. They smelled our savory meats. And she wishes to eat of it. Let us offer some to her. They presented her with the tongue. She was pleased with the taste of it and said, Your kindness shall be rewarded. Come to this place after thirteen moons, and you shall find something that will be of great benefit in nourishing you and your children to the latest generations. They did so and to their surprise found plants that they had never seen before, but which from that ancient time have been constantly cultivated among us to our great advantage. Where her right hand had touched the ground, they found maize, corn, where her left hand had touched it, they found kidney beans, and where her backside had sat on it, they found tobacco. The good missionary, disgusted with this idle tale, said, 
What I deliver to you was sacred truths, and what you tell me is mere fable, fiction, and falsehood. The Indian, offended, replied, My brother, it seems your friends have not done you justice in your education. They have not well instructed you in the rules of common civility. You saw that we who understood and practiced those rules believed all your stories. Why do you refuse to believe ours? <whistles> when any of them, the savages, come into our towns, our people are apt to crowd around them gaze upon them and incommode them. Where they desire to be private, this they, dis they, they esteem great rudeness and the effect of the want of instruction in the rules of civility and good manners. They saw the white people just didn't know how to teach their kids to act like human beings. And they grew up to be men and women who didn't know how to act like human beings. Right, says Ben. You know, make that clear. Done. We have, say they, the savages Ben is speaking of, as much curiosity as you, and when you come into our towns, we wish for opportunities of looking at you, but for this purpose, we hide ourselves behind bushes where you are to pass and never intrude ourselves into your company. Their manner of entering one another's village has likewise its rules. It is reckoned uncivil in traveling strangers to enter a village abruptly without giving notice of their approach. Therefore, as soon as they arrive within hearing, they stop and holler, cry out, and they remain there until invited to enter. Two old men usually come out to them and lead them in. There is in every village a vacant dwelling called the stranger's house. Here they are placed while the old men go round from hut to hut, acquainting the inhabitants that strangers are arrived who are probably hungry and weary, and everyone sends them what he can spare of victuals and skins to repose on. When the strangers are refreshed, pipes and tobacco are brought, and then, but not before, conversation begins. With inquiries, who they are, whither bound, what news, etc. And it usually ends with offers of service if the strangers have occasion of guides or any necessaries for continuing their journey. And nothing is exacted for the entertainment. The same hospitality esteemed among them as a principal virtue is practiced by private persons of which Conrad Weiser, our interpreter, gave me the following instances. He had been naturalized among the Six Nations and spoke well the Mohawk language. 
In going through the Indian country to carry a message from our governor to the council at Onondaga, he called at the habitation of Canastego, an old acquaintance, who embraced him, spread furs for him to sit on, placed before him some boiled beans and venison, and mixed some rum and water for his drink. When he was well refreshed and had lit his pipe, Canastego began to converse with him, asking how he'd fared the many years since they had seen each other. Whence he then came, what occasioned the journey, and so on. Conrad answered all his questions, and when the discourse began to flag, the Indian, to continue it, said, Conrad, you've lived long among the white people and know something of their customs. I have been sometimes at Albany and have observed that once in seven days they shut up their shops and assemble all in the great house. Tell me, what is it for? What do they do there? Uh, they meet there, says Conrad, to hear and, and learn good things. I, I do not doubt, says the Indian, that they tell you so. They have told me the same. But I doubt the truth of what they say, and I will tell you my reasons. I went lately to Albany to sell my skins and buy blankets, knives, powder, rum, etc. You know, I used generally to deal with Hans Hansen. But I was a little inclined this time to try some other merchant. However, I called first upon Hans, and I asked him what he would give for beaver. He said he could not give any more than four shillings a pound. But, says he, <clears throat> I cannot talk on business now. This is the day when we meet together to learn good things, and I am going to the meeting. So I thought to myself, since we cannot do any business today, I may as well go to the meeting, too. And I went with him. There stood up a man in black and began to talk to the people very angrily. I did not understand what he said, but perceiving that he looked much at me and at Hansen, I imagined he was angry at seeing me there. So I went out, sat down near the house, struck fire and lit my pipe, waiting till the meeting should break up. I thought, too, that the men had mentioned something of beaver, and I suspected it might be the subject of their meeting. So when they came out, I accosted my merchant. Well, Hans, says I, I hope you have agreed to give more than four shillings a pound. No, says he, I cannot give so much. I cannot give more than three shillings and sixpence. I then spoke to several other dealers, but they all sung the same song. Three and sixpence, three and sixpence. This made it clear to me that my suspicion was right, and that whatever they pretended of meeting to learn good things, the real purpose was to consult how to cheat Indians and the price of beaver. Consider but a little, Conrad, and you must be of my opinion. 
If they met so often to learn good things, they would certainly have learned some before this time. But they are still ignorant. You know our practice. If a white man in traveling through our country enters one of our cabins, we all treat him as I treat you. We dry him if he is wet. We warm him if he is cold. We give him meat and drink that he may allay his thirst and hunger. And we spread soft furs for him to rest and sleep on. We demand nothing in return. But if I go into a white man's house at Albany and ask for vittles and drink, they say, where's your money? And if I have none, they say, get out, you engine dog. You see, they, they've not yet learned those little good things that we need no meetings to be instructed in because our mothers taught them to us when we were children. Therefore, it is impossible their meeting should be as they say for any such purpose or have any such effect. They are only to contrive the cheating of Indians and the price of beaver. Thank you, Benjamin Franklin. Father, hallelujah, of my nation. Okay, friends, tell me what you think. We'll have other guests like Ben in the future, eloquent men who have said things that we should have been taught, if not by our mothers, by our teachers. But they did not, did they? Life in a white man's world. Life for a white man's child. <laughs> 